Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And as ever, he says, throatily, we have got so much to cram in in our time together, so much that we need to make sense of together. If it's all right with you, this is what we're going to do. A couple of assembly notices, as usual, comme d'habitude, for our French audience. And then I'm going to reflect on the lessons learned so far in the Tory leadership contest, with a slight swerve towards uh, implications for Keir Starmer and Labour as well. And, spoiler alert, to my surprise, we've learnt quite a lot. Even though this is a contest, to put it at its most polite, painted in big colours with uh, no policy detail, the TV debates and some of the things that uh, candidates have said have um, given some hint of what is to follow this autumn, what is to follow this contest, whoever wins. So I'm going to reflect on that. Then we return to your brilliant questions, a lot on the leadership contest. As ever, they shine much light. I've got hundreds. I've read them all and it's kind of stimulated me into planning future podcasts when the Tory leadership contest is less compelling in its dark way. It is curiously compelling, I find, more so than I thought, uh, but in a very limited way, as I'll go on to explain. So yeah, let's get going, because it's hot out there. Notices, don't forget, Edinburgh Festival, from Monday, August the 15th, all the way through, uh, rock and roll politics. You've got to get up there, uh, wherever you are in that kind of part of the world, and indeed, England. It's going to be fun. I'm on at 11 o'clock. I call it Start the Day at the Edinburgh Festival with rock and roll uh, politics. And my God, you know, uh, the last time I was there was 2019. Hung Parliament, everyone wondering what the hell was going to happen with Brexit to now. What do we make sense of that time span? I mean, when we get together for these podcasts, we have to make sense of a week. And to be honest, we could all go on for hours, couldn't we? just trying to do that. So anyway, it's going to be fun. So please try and get up there for that. And uh, loads of questions live each day, different themes, which the audience can choose each day. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And this Thursday, if you're around on the South Coast, I'm live in Shoreham, the great legendary Rope Tackle Arts Centre. Somehow or other, whenever I'm there, epic politics erupts around us. So if you're on the South Coast, Brighton or whatever, Head to Shoreham and that beautiful arts centre. Thursday night, there are still a few tickets left, only a few, I'm told. So I hope to see you uh, there as we, yeah, we'll know the last two for that live show. And then over to Edinburgh, where, yeah, the battle for the next prime minister will be taking weird forms, I suspect. Talking of which, I tweeted before the first televised leaders debate that the leadership debates would tell us nothing, that the field was too crowded when the debates took place, and therefore no candidate would have the space to either shine or fail. Well, that is kind of broadly true, but light was 
Sean. And what I'm going to do, because you all listen to this at different points during the week, it does mean that some of you will be listening when the field of candidates is still quite big. Some of you might well be listening when it's down to the last two. So I'm not going to focus on personality. I'm going to focus on policy. As Tony Benn used to famously say, the policy is not the personalities that count. And as ever with Tony Benn, it was a complex observation because his personality was pretty mesmerising as a public figure. And yet the policies, he's right, it's what matter. And we've learnt quite a lot. The essence of the tax divide, and by the way, all candidates show no interest or very little interest in how you use the state Uh, in an active way to achieve levelling up, to achieve social care and all these other things. I'll come on to that in a minute. They're obsessed with this tax issue. And the tax divide is uh, an interesting one. It's rooted in the 1980s. These candidates struggle to move beyond that. Perhaps Tom Tugendhat, if he had been given more space and time, might have done. Who knows? In essence, the tax divide is between... Sunak, who is the Thatcherite candidate, some of Liz Truss's supporters have said he's the socialist candidate in this contest, which which kind of puts the whole thing in a totally surreal light. There has not been a candidate in a Tory leadership contest in modern times, less of a socialist than Rishi Sunak. He is the Thatcherite who argues that you get tax cuts when you can pay for them. And to do so prematurely, could fuel inflation, and inflation is his first challenge. Now, that is very uh, Thatcherite. Uh, She did uh, introduce some tax cuts, but only when they were, in inverted commas, paid for. And he's against uh, an argument that basically Reagan deployed in the 1980s, which is you can borrow to finance tax cuts. He built up a great level of debt through his tax cuts, which incidentally uh, have a tenuous link with economic growth. So much so, actually, that in his famous 1992 presidential victory, Clinton was able and had a huge influence on Blair and Brown to pose himself as the sort of prudent, uh, fiscally prudent candidate, saying he was going to deal with the deficit uh, and the debt Uh, that had accumulated in the Republican years. But this is the position that um, challenges Sunak, that you can treat, in a way, the pandemic debt as you treated the debt in the World War, the First World War, which incidentally has only recently been repaid, and treat it as a long-term project to repay. And in the meantime, not worry about it and introduce tax cuts. Whenever this is mentioned, Sunak looks pained uh, and uh, says that will just fuel inflation. And if you fuel inflation, all hell will continue to break loose with the British economy. Now, although this is a very narrow argument, there's a much bigger argument to be had in a grown-up debate uh, with Uh, those in the Labour Party capable of a grown-up debate about whether you can stimulate economic growth through active government and public spending being judiciously uh, used. Um, But that's not part of this debate. It's when you do tax cuts and how. 
But it's so fundamental that I think we know this in the autumn. If Sunak wins, he will face one hell of a lot of resistance to his economic policy. It is opposed famously by those around Johnson. Rees-Mogg is one of those who's described Sunak as a socialist. And obviously other candidates have been crying out for immediate tax cuts in some form or another. So I think there's a question mark as to whether if Sunak continues with his Thatcherite approach, which is seen as socialist by the Thatcherites in this bewildered and confused Tory party, uh, whether he will be able to get his economic policies through. There could well be a big revolt. There is no love lost for Sunak amongst those who still feel loyal to Johnson. Apparently at this um, uh, checkers party on Sunday uh, when Johnson should have been uh, at various meetings to address the high temperature crisis. It was all about, you know, we've got to get Sunak, we've got to sort out Sunak. Sunak has betrayed the king and all this kind of stuff. And so I think he will not have a great honeymoon with his party. He might do with voters who will say, oh, a grown-up's in charge at last. Um, he might do with the markets for a bit, saying at last a grown-up's in number 10. And he will appoint a chancellor who agrees with him. So there will not be this endless number 10, number 11 tension as there was with Johnson and Sunak. But with his parliamentary party, there will be an ongoing ideological debate because the door has opened on those debates within the cabinet where trusts and others were saying, we do not need the national insurance rise, debt can take it and uh, we can have tax cuts instead. It will be ongoing. It won't end if Sunak becomes prime minister. If Sunak doesn't become prime minister, he will go on the backbenches. There is no way he will accept a post in one of the other's cabinets. He certainly couldn't be chancellor because he would disagree fundamentally with the new prime minister's economic policy. And what then do Sunak's followers do if another prime minister is elected in the early autumn, beginning of September, who do immediately introduce tax cuts, which Sunak is wholly opposed to, convinced it will be inflationary. Will they vote against such a move? So either way, a Sunak victory or a Sunak defeat is going to lead to vivid tensions over economic policy this autumn, specifically in the area of taxation, but not just that because everything else is then connected with it. Big dramas ahead. This leadership contest will not be a cathartic resolution of the uh, Johnson years. In a way, Johnson was a symptom of an existential crisis within the Tory party, and so is this wacky leadership contest that follows the inevitable fall of Johnson that all but Johnson's followers can see was wholly deserved. And I think already people within the Tory party beginning to reflect, what the hell did we do uh, putting up with this figure for three years? But his followers, few but intense uh, figures, uh, see betrayal of their great hero. And that too is full of tension, as was the case with the fall of Thatcher in 1990.
What else do we know? We know, I think, that a policy for social care looks dead and buried. Uh, there was a very interesting moment. On, remember Johnson's first lie uh, was outside number 10 when he was elected prime minister in July 2019 when he said he had a plan for social care. He didn't. Uh, two years in, he panicked, thinking, oh, God, they're going to ask me on the second anniversary, where's this plan? And so he, Sunak and Javid, uh, Chancellor and Health Secretary, as were, had panic-stricken meetings. Uh, he said, oh, I, I've got to I've got to do social care. So uh, Sunak said, well, you're going to have to pay for it through a tax rise. I'm not just going to borrow more. And Javid said, well, hold on a second. What about the NHS? And in, out of that chaos came the national insurance rise and to pay for the NHS, not social care. And there was a very interesting exchange in one of the debates, the Channel 4 debate, where Tom Tugendhat said to Sunak, but when I spoke to you about this, you told me the boss wanted it. And Sunak replied somewhat disingenuously, look, I was happy to find the money to pay for the NHS. But that wasn't the origins of the discussion. The origins of the discussion was that Johnson wanted the money so he could claim to have a plan for social care. And none of the candidates leapt on this to say it's social care that this was originally meant to address. Now, none of them are going to go into the next general election pledged to cut NHS spending or else they'll lose. And that's what they would have to do to transfer it to social care. But given all their obsessive focuses on tax cuts, they're not going to put up taxes to meet the demand for social care. So the social care plan, in inverted commas, heralded by Boris Johnson on day one of his premiership, is dead. Yet again, a British government has failed to address this problem of social care. When, if ever, is that going to be resolved? I think we know from this leadership contest it will not be in the next couple of years before the general election. Also note the lack of great enthusiasm for levelling up. Levelling up costs money. These candidates are all obsessed, in theory anyway, with a smaller state, uh, shrinking the state. Uh, it's what drives them, and that gives them a kind of theoretical shield for arguing for tax cuts. Levelling up is expensive. Uh, Michael Gove tried to get money for his white paper on levelling up. He couldn't get it, hence it's rather beautifully, elegantly argued kind of theoretical, historical look at levelling up, going back to Roman times, because he couldn't get more money. None of the candidates are choosing to be distinctive by highlighting levelling up, by giving examples of ways in which they would level up, for one simple reason. It would cost money. And they're all pretending that there are big savings to be made in order to bring about a smaller state without impacting on public services. So levelling up, which was uh, an example, theoretical, because it was never applied, of one nation conservatism, looks dead in this contest very much rooted on the right of the Conservative Party. The climate change goals also uh, look as if they're going to tumble. Uh, the way the candidates put it is that they 
remain committed to the long-term goal, but are wary of some of the short-term goals if it affects people's uh, cost of living. And so it looks as if in the short term, there will be a walk away from some of the climate change commitments. And that too is a reflection on the broader leadership campaign, which is looking at how to make the state less active rather than more active. Smaller state, shrink the state. Um, Tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. Um, Anyway, that's how it looks at the moment. In terms of an election, uh, all of them have ruled out an early election. Uh, But remember this, their target audience is, uh, first of all, MPs, then the party membership. And it's unsurprising. The party members, last thing they want is an early election when their party's behind in the polls. They're all exhausted in this hot summer. They haven't got much money and so on. But if, big if, one of these candidates, the winner, gets a prime ministerial honeymoon, we know, because it always happens, there will be speculation about a possible early election, and the newcomer will feel under considerable pressure to go for it to get his or her own mandate. So that won't go away if the new leader gets a honeymoon as prime minister. I suspect it will. they will get a honeymoon because there will be a sense of change in the air, but it will be pretty short-lived because of the scale of the challenges, the division within the Conservative Party over how to address those challenges, and the broader reluctance to address some of them at all, because it involves active government. And as I said um, before Johnson fell, that although so many who listened to the podcast and many others were yearning for him to fall, uh, the consequences would be a lurch to the right, because it was Johnson alone at the height of his authority, which remember was a year ago, when he gained Hartlepool single-handedly in a by-election. He was the one pressing for levelling up, pressing for social care. It was incoherent as with everything to do with him because he hadn't worked out how it would be paid for. It was cakeism. Tax cuts, we need tax cuts, ends public spending. That's what drove Sunak bonkers. But his instincts were more statist, uh, a willingness to use the state than any of the others. And now he's out of the picture All of that uh, goes, I think, for this very much small state Thatcherism. But here's the other twist. When they get into number 10, whoever does, an election will be looming, uh, less than two years probably before the next general election. And they won't want to do anything that jeopardizes their chances of winning that general election. And that has profound implications because they won't want to cut the NHS budget, the defence budget, and all these other things. They they won't want to do reform, in inverted commas, to bring about efficiencies, in inverted commas, before a general election. So I think the first thing any of these small staters will do this autumn is spend more money subsidising the cost of living crisis. It's a mess. It's a, a, a real mess. But there is, within that mess, a challenge for Keir Starmer. 
I mean, it's it, this is a dream contest for a Labour leader of the opposition. Indeed, the sequence of the last few weeks is a dream. The fall of Johnson in disgrace, his refusal to go at first voluntarily, had to be dragged, kicking and screaming, and he's still not gone. And then this uh, revealing divide being played out in public over taxation policy. You can see, by the way, with those televised debates, which, um, as I speak now, they're all kind of pulling out of subsequent ones. You can see why Gordon Brown didn't want a proper leadership contest in 2007. In the modern media era, they are unavoidably divisive when there are sort of big economic questions at stake, as there was when Gordon Brown fought the non-leadership contest in 2007, and as this lot are doing now. But here's the challenge. All the Tory candidates are saying the key for them is economic growth, getting the economy going. Uh, I heard Keir Starmer being interviewed by Andrew Marr last week on Andrew Marr's excellent LBC programme, and uh, Keir Starmer said his big idea, he kept he repeated it like Blaise do with education, economic growth, economic growth, economic growth. Who's against economic growth? So you've got two parties. Whoever wins this will be saying, right, my objective is economic growth. And you've got Keir Starmer saying, my big idea is economic growth. That's not enough. This is an end. In politics, the key debate's about the means. And Labour must have that in place this autumn. You're going to have a new leader moving fast in the opening uh, weeks of his or her premiership. And Labour cannot be seen to be playing catch-up. There's no reason why they should, by the way. It's going to be a a thorny, obstacle-filled field for the new Prime Minister. But both sides are saying economic growth. Fine. How? And the side with the bigger ideas and the more credible ideas can win that debate. Now, given that all this other lot are small state Tories, the field is open, but it's got to be used this summer in terms of preparing for the announcements in the autumn for Labour. Economic growth is what both sides are saying is their big goal unsurprisingly, as I say, you wouldn't do a vox pop anywhere, wherever the BBC went to do their silly vox pops. You wouldn't say, look, mate, what I want is no economic growth. I'm against economic growth, all right? There are challenges there for Keir Starmer in what, frankly, is a dream context for him at the moment. Uh, Let's see how it goes. Okay, email steverick14 at icloud.com, steverick14 at icloud.com. Do get your points across and questions. Uh, We're going to have fewer than usual again this week because uh, quite a few of your questions were about some of the candidates. I'm very conscious that some of you will be listening to this when there are only two candidates left, maybe three candidates. So I'm not going to read that. I've read them all. They're fantastic. And some of you have written about other things. There's a brilliant email about Oldham, a kind of profile of Oldham and its politics, which was, was terrific. And I will read out on another occasion. There were a few on electoral reform. Electoral reform. I can feel the drumbeat towards the electoral reform special. And somebody uh, tweeted me about electoral reform at the Edinburgh Festival. Can't promise a, a whole special there uh, on that, but it's bound to arise in questions. 
Noah Keats says, can it be argued that prime ministers who were election winners built their initial leadership campaign based on what they weren't and what they rejected? This is often due to the fact that what came before was election losing. So Margaret Thatcher sought to explicitly reject Edward Heath. Tony Blair defined himself as a rejection of old Labour. To what extent will leaders always seek to depart from their predecessors? Now, this is interesting. Most leaders sense, uh, or successful leaders sense, that one of the things they have to do is personify change, a break from the past. Uh, Oddly, Ed Miliband has been bollocked left, right and centre from seeking to move on from New Labour, but that's what they all do. Tony Blair, the personification of New Labour, did it, as Noah suggests, by referring to New Labour as against Old Labour, an overt break with the past. You're right, Thatcher did it with Heath. And what's so interesting in the Tory leadership contest is the degree to which these relatively unknown candidates made quite an impact in the early stages, at least, because they appeared to just personify change uh, without specifying in much detail what the change would take. Um, So, yeah, I think that what successful candidates do is make a leap, but do so in such a way that you can carry quite a lot of those uh, who were part of the old regime. Uh, But yeah, definition is partly based on the past. Um, And it's quite interesting the degree to which that is done. You see, Thatcher never overtly disowned Heath, uh, either um, when she became opposition leader in 75 or as prime minister. She just did it in terms of policy in a way that drove him bonkers. Um, We've heard about Blair and old Labour. He never did sort of personal attacks. Uh, Keir Starmer is unusual, well, unique in suspending the previous leader and talking so overtly about how he is uh, taking advice from uh, Tony Blair. It's, it is an, an interesting approach to the past. OK, thanks, uh, Noah. Denise Willier. Given that things are only going to get worse as the cost of living crisis bites and no candidate in the Tory race has a viable plan to address this, I'm struggling to see how it's wishful thinking to take the view that the Tory brand isn't on the verge of being irreparably damaged if it isn't already. Um, Yeah, probably, Denise. Um, I know what you mean. The, The pollster you were referring to says... Boris Johnson damaged the brand, uh, but the Tory brand itself is okay. Um, We'll know. We'll know quite. We'll know this autumn, I think. If um, there is a sense of a new government um, and voters like it, the Tory brand is safe. But I think that is unlikely to happen. That's what happened, of course, in 1990, the fall of Thatcher. John Major came in and um, he uh, went on to win the next election quite easily, actually, in 1992. Small majority, but big, the big vote for the Tories in 92. I don't think that's going to happen this time, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, So the answer is, Denise, I think we'll know by the autumn uh, when this new prime minister is in place. Uh, Henry writes, I don't know, don't know your surname, Henry. 
Henry writes, I noticed your tweet after the Channel 4 debate about Sunak being the clear winner of that contest. Yeah, I did one of those superficial, ridiculous tweets saying uh, Sunak was the winner of the Channel 4 one last Friday. Uh, One of the things I suppose that really marks him out is that he's the only one to have held a senior domestic policy portfolio in government. Yeah, he he points out the foreign secretary is different, though senior. What do you think the current contest says about the role of experience in politics? Um, I was watching the other day a great interview you did, which is now on YouTube, about the 1976 leadership race. And the candidates in that seem so much more experienced. Does it uh, matter? Uh, Henry said, love the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, He said, oh, I really enjoyed the uh, uh, episode on Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams. Oh, thank you. That's on the Patreon website. For those of you who want to join that, you get all kinds of podcasts of cinematic political relationships and general elections and things. Um, I, I think experience matters. And one of the reasons why the Tory leadership debate is so shallow is that um, uh, the candidates, uh, although some have had quite a lot of cabinet experience, have not um, been involved in great sort of epic uh, challenges and ideological battles and all the rest of it. Like, so the 1976 Labour leadership contest um, the contrast is quite interesting in that Wilson resigned and those who stood were uh, Jim Callaghan, Dennis Healy, Roy Jenkins, Tony Crossland, Michael Foote, Tony Benn, I think one other. Um, now, wherever you are on the political spectrum, they were objectively bigger figures. I re- tweeted that the other day and John Sopel, uh, my friend John Sopel replied, uh, but what about the diversity? They were all uh, old men and this contest is so diverse and it is unquestionably true um but that i still don't think uh, counters the need for weightiness now actually that uh, 76 to 79 government uh descended into chaos and 18 years of opposition but i still don't think that excludes the value of depth and weight and we are really lacking it and in fairness We have lacked it in recent Labour leadership contests too. Now, the legendary Anthony uh, Broxton, who does Tides of History and all kinds of wonderful contextualising on Twitter and elsewhere, says, uh, since 1963, there have been 10 leadership contests. Of those, seven of the 10 who started off as favourite lost or didn't in the end stand. Yeah, this is really interesting. The danger of being favourite in a Tory leadership contest. The losers were Rab Butler in 1963. Rab Butler made a habit of never getting there. He's the first chapter in my book on the Prime Ministers we never had. Willie Whitelaw, 1975. Michael Heseltine, 1990. Uh, Michael Heseltine again in 97. Portillo in 2001. David Davis, 2005 and Johnson in 2016. Uh, And the only three winners were Heath, 64, Howard, 2003, and Johnson, 2019. Uh, And he wonders whether the favourite in this uh, race will suffer the uh, same historical 
fate of being knocked out. Um, I'm not going to go into the sort of identity of uh, who was considered favourite uh, in the early phases of this contest, because as I say, um, by the time some of you listen to this, uh, there'll be you'll be down to the last two. Um, but it is fascinating how often the favourite doesn't make it in Tory contests. And um, the reasons for it are, I mean, they're quite diverse. So Heseltine in 97 didn't stand in the end because he his doctor told him not to. He had had a heart attack in the last term of that Tory government um, and Heseltine regretted it subsequently because he's been fine. This happens to a lot of these Tory politicians. They're told they're ill and then live for another 50-odd years. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a real pressure because all the other candidates pile on you uh, in an attempt to undermine your apparent ascendancy, and clearly with considerable effect. Uh, God, Portillo in 2001, that was, again, that's another chapter in my book. What an arc from Thatcherite hero to reject by 2001. Thank you very much, Anthony, and thank you for providing context, making sense of it all, the great crusade of this podcast too. Uh, Mark Williams says, in my way, the best way of electing a leader is to select one by holding a vote only among the MPs of the parliamentary process. And this whole process should be swift as well. Two weeks is an absolute maximum. That's how they elected John Major uh, in 1990. It took about a week. Yeah, there's a very good case, Mark, for uh, MPs alone electing leaders. Um, they know them. It's neat and fast. Um, and party members tend to um, be pretty, well, the Tory membership have uh, now elected three prime ministers, two two already and about to do a third. And um, no one, not even the most ardent Tory, would argue that this rather elderly membership is representative of the uh, country as a whole. Um, so I think there is an argument for doing it to the parliamentary party. It's never going to go back to that. No leader is going to stand depriving members of power. It's just not going to happen. Uh, Stuart Grant, uh, he, he was the one who uh, famously gave me as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost. And by the way, what, uh, you know, there he is slagging off Penny Mordant Frosty. He, he wrote one article for the Daily Telegraph saying, I would not, uh, I would not serve in Penny Mordant's cabinet. Oh, a nation shudders at the fear of Frosty not being available for service after his triumphant Brexit negotiation. Well, anyway, Stuart uh, gave me those great Union Jack socks as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frosty, who wore them during his triumphant Brexit negotiations. Anyway, Stuart writes, he's, he, he is a kind of barometer voter. Uh, disillusioned with the Tories, but not yet captivated by Labour. He says, I wrote a few weeks back that the lack of vision offered by Sir Keir Starmer so far was underwhelming me. So the interests of balance, I must say that I'm finding the same fault with most of the candidates in the current Tory campaign. Yeah, well, that is, you see, that's very interesting. Leadership campaigns can give a party a boost sometimes, uh, not often, but sometimes. And the fact that this one, the, the Channel 4 audience were floating voters like Stuart, and they were not thrilled with what they saw in the leaders' debate. And Stuart isn't. 
again, uh, it suggests that there isn't going to be a kind of glorious honeymoon for the winner, though you can never quite tell what the mood is like when a new government is formed. Um, so uh, keep us informed, Stuart, whether one of them sways you or whether you are beginning to be swayed by Keir Starmer and Labour. Kathy Mears gets in touch with the most important message of the week. Did you hear that Lee Rowley speaking in support of Kemi Badnock on the Today programme this morning? Kathy adds, scary. Um, well, Lee Rowley, for, the, for new listeners, Lee Rowley is um, this podcast's one to watch. Um, it began at a live show at King's Place where someone in the audience said, what about Lee Rowley? I'd never heard of him. And that week he got a job in government and he's been soaring ever since. And now look at him. Uh, he, the moment he named Kemi Badnock, she became a star. Uh, so thank you for alerting us to this. Listeners who missed it, Rowley goes for Kemi Badnock. Now, by the time you hear this, she might be out of the contest. But Lee Rowley has declared, and it means she's a star in the new administration in some form or other. We continue to follow Lee Rowley very closely. Um, thank you uh, very much. Uh, Venetia Kane, all of you, all of you emphasize the need to bring about growth. Would you not agree that the best and most simple way to achieve economic growth would be to rejoin the single market? Now, I know Venetia's being provocative here, but it's a very good point. While uh, Britain is excluded from this huge market, almost, or, or, or barriers are in place, this market on its doorstep through which its entire economy had been focused until 2019, 2020, um, economic growth is going to be much harder. And so it is the great conundrum. Uh, it's all been ruled out from all those who are espousing understandably, economic growth as a good idea. As I say, who's against economic growth? But how do you get it? And how do you get it when you're out of the single market and customs union? Good point. Thank you very much, Venetia. Jeff Strange says, I crave boring. Look where the opposite has got us. I even crave a PM like John Major again. Can we not have a boring contender for Tory PM? I thought that might be uh, Jeremy Hunt. And then he goes and appoints Esther McVeigh as his deputy. Yeah, Jeremy Hunt did not have a glorious leadership contest. Steve, can you ever see England having boring 1950s politics again? The odd sex scandal. Okay, bit of titillation for the red top readers. But can we not be like Germany of Mrs. Merkel fame? I don't know. Um... Uh, Jeff, uh, whether boring will ever come back into British politics. It's, it has been hysterical and theatrical for a hell of a long time. And I suspect we're in for more of that. And even though Keir Starmer, it's certainly wholly unfairly uh, and simplistically is being accused of being boring, I can promise you if there's a Labour government, boredom is not going to be an issue. Um, so no, Jeff, uh, you, you're going to have to wait to be bored a long, long time. It's going to get wilder, I suspect. Oh, Jeff's coming up to Edinburgh. See you there, Jeff. Um, that'll be great. 
Um, Gillian Oliver writes, I'm writing to ask you about Sajid Javid. Which do you think was more of a factor on his withdrawal from the race? Was it because he wielded the knife, as the old convention goes? Or is it, as Baroness Wheatcroft observed, that he failed to cultivate networks within the party? A theme I recall from the prime ministers we never had. It is true that some of the prime ministers we never had are quite shy about wooing party MPs and others, Hesseltine being a classic example. He didn't. He had a few slightly eccentric, devoted followers, Hesseltine, but he didn't like doing that working the tea room stuff and saying, look, come on, vote for me, vote for me. Um, and uh, Javid, it just, it just didn't work. It, you know, he, he didn't, I think, have a distinctive enough pitch, really. Um, and it is, it, it is really humiliating when it happens. I mean, they will feel sore, those who were knocked out very early on, especially Javid, who was the first to resign. It was his resignation got the whole thing going. Um, and he wasn't rewarded in any shape or form. I think his resignation speech didn't help. It wasn't commanding. It didn't feel leaderly. And uh, leadership contests are all, is all about political artistry. Uh, this one lacks artists, but um, and, and he was one of them who, who wasn't an artist. Uh, Owen Jarvis, uh, I've, I've got to read this because he misheard me last week. He said, um, at one point you were recounting an email from Sarah who was visiting Cornwall and commenting on the impact of Brexit on staffing in the local area, etc. At one point you said, I voted for Brexit but didn't expect the impact on funding. Were you reading Sarah's comments out or were they your comments? No, no, I, Owen, I, I did not vote for Brexit. I think uh, this podcast would have sounded a bit odd if I'd been an ardent uh, Brexiteer. Um, I was quoting letters to the Cornishman uh, very soon after the referendum, Cornishman being the local paper, where people, uh, voters down there were saying, well, I voted for Brexit, but I didn't realise that meant we would lose EU funding for all the stuff that goes on down there. Um, and, you know, people, God, that referendum. Don't blame the Brexiteers. They had every right to campaign in the way they did. It was the decision to call one on an issue of such complex complexity that was unforgivable. And the consequences are still being played and will be for decades to come. Matthew Tucker and Paul Cooper both write about the same point. The power of the ERG. Um, while the ERG is in play, Matthew Tucker says, is, does, it have any, does the party have any hope of occupying the middle brown, ground again? Uh, Paul Co- Cooper notes that whilst Johnson and Cummings liked a maverick approach to politics, I can't remember them making enemies of the ERG. So will the next PM have to work with the ERG to, and allow it again to set the government agenda? Yeah, that ERG group, that Steve Baker group, whatever guise it manifests itself in next, has has had a hold over several Tory prime ministers. And I suspect the Tory party cannot make a break towards a more one-nation Toryism. A theme of this podcast has been watching how Theresa May kind of tried to do so. And Johnson, I've mentioned it already today, levelling up and social care, tried to do so, but always dragged back. And the power of the ERG and this evangelical Steve Baker has remained potent 
and I suspect the Tory party will not get back towards being a modern, outward-looking party in terms of economic policy and internationalism until a leader is brave enough to challenge that ERG rather than succumb to it. Finally, from Margaret Hickman. Uh, Steve, I love the podcast, so thank you very much. Um, I live in Bristol, so listen online to your King's Place events. Watch them, I hope, Margaret. You you get the whole thing, not just some creaky sound. Uh, So I hope... uh, Oh, that's great, Margaret. Uh, The next one's being streamed as well. September the 19th, live in the hall and stream live. Uh, Edinburgh Festival just live in the hall. Uh, Oh, yeah, she's come to Bristol. I'd really like to. Uh, My question is, would Keir Starmer benefit from having his Marcia Williams? I don't think he has an equivalent. It's a really good question, Margaret. Um, For those of you, and who are you, who haven't uh, subscribed to Patreon, um, I argue in the bonus podcast on Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams that she didn't have some mysterious hold over him. He rated her, trusted her, And she was there from the beginning to the end. And he could turn to her and know she was unequivocally loyal, understood him, understood politics. And Keir Starmer, who is relatively new to politics, hasn't got a Marcia Williams. He's got people in his office who are utterly committed to him, um, but not someone who is so close to him that he could turn to and know that the advice would be good, that it would be based on what was best for him in in all circumstances. It's a rapport and a trust and so on. And prime ministers definitely need them. Uh, and leaders of the opposition, if they're lucky, need them. Uh, Tony Blair had quite a few who were there from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, so did, uh, well, no, Theresa May had to get rid of hers, people like Nick Timothy. Um, but I think prime ministers need them. And I'm a big fan of Marcia Williams because she sustained Wilson through hellish periods. Uh, she was tricky, really tricky. But I think he hasn't got an equivalent and could benefit from one. Okay, so, well, there were many other questions, but I hope you understand why I haven't read them out. They were either on other topics or have dated slightly because of the fast-moving leadership contest. The picture will be clear when we gather again next week. Uh, It will be down to those last two. And uh, although, as I've argued in today's podcast, we're getting some light shed on what form this autumn is going to take, and it will be stormy. Um, there will be more clarity next week and questions which will have as timeless a quality as I hope this podcast will have, uh, irrespective of what you know about that contest when you are listening. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, stay cool. I mean, we're a cool crowd, the rock and roll politics crowd, but we're up against heat this week, the heat of politics and the heat of that sun. Anyway, take care of yourselves. Thank you so much for listening. Do leave a review if you can, because it gets more people involved. And um, let's get together again next week, when, boy, will we have to make sense of it all. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.